Well, this morning I've entitled the message, Never Surrender, and Harold told me he wanted to sing, I Surrender All, this morning, and that would have been appropriate, because we're not talking about before Christ, we're talking about after Christ. Once we know Christ, once we commit our lives to Christ, once we have truly surrendered all, then the next step is to never surrender. You're going, huh? To never surrender. Paul begins to wind down his letter to the Philippian church, and he breaks down a series of one-line instructions. Uh, And at first, they seem to be kind of a disjointed collection of thoughts, but I don't think that's what it is, because I think what he's talking about is something that we as well as the church at Philippi, needed to grasp. And it's the idea that once we're in Christ, we must never surrender. What do you mean? Paul understood the battle that raged around us. He understood the spiritual battle that every single follower of Jesus enters into once we meet Christ. All of humanity had rejected God's loving presence, but God intervened and gave us the offer of salvation. And give us that, and gave us that one thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the gospel of Christ to lead us in a new pathway. But even on that pathway, friends, there are times when we want to surrender. We want to give up. We want to live like the world. We want to do the things like everybody else does. But Jesus. And on that pathway, the battle to remain faithful never ends. Negativity calls us continually to surrender the good life that God has for us. Negativity calls us continually to settle for the pleasures the pleasures of the world. And what Paul wanted the church at Philippi, you and me as well, is to do this, to never surrender to the pain, to the ugliness, to the foolishness, to the wickedness of this world. And instead his hope is that we would always live the real life in a way God is exalted and our lives are positively impacted and impacts those around us. So what Paul is doing to the church for the church of Philippi is he's writing this letter, and we've been looking at it for a few weeks, but he's writing it in a way that I would describe as, as more prescriptive than descriptive. Now, what do you mean? He's, he's, pres- he's prescribing a, a path of life to help them live the very best life they can. He is not writing to them saying, y'all been messing up, and we got to stop it. And he had letters like that in the New Testament, but not so much Philippi. And not the church, the Philippian church. He's more concerned with helping them to avoid the pitfalls that, that, that are out there. And his call is clear. They needed to make a choice to never surrender the sweet unity of Christ for bitterness. They needed to allow reasonableness to fill their lives, push aside injustice. They needed to live at peace instead of being filled with anxiety. And they needed to find godliness overcoming ungodly thinking. Now, Paul was not a pastor. We sometimes think he was, but he wasn't. He was an evangelist and a church planter. But he loved people enough to say, here's what you need to hear. Here's what you need to grasp. This is the truth you need for your life. Because he said, I want you to live the real life, the best life you can now. So there's four things I want you to see in this passage. And it starts out kind of almost humorous, if it wasn't so sad, with a conversation about a couple of ladies. Look at verse 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now you're going, how do you know they're women? Well, he tells us in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names 
are in the book of life. I think the first thing that he calls this church to do, and I think it's a call for us as well, is to refuse to live disagreeably. Very rarely does Paul mention a lot of individuals by name, but here he pulls out two names right together, and he talks about them directly. Can you imagine sitting in church when the letter from Paul showed up and your shepherd, pastor, whoever it was in the church that was reading the letter starts reading the letter and you're all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it gets down to this and he says, now you Odia and Sintiki, whoa. Can you imagine being in church that morning? Yeah. Especially if your name happened to be Euodia or Sintiki, you'd be kind of going, what in the world? But they were having some kind of disagreement. They were followers of Jesus, and we're pretty sure this agreement wasn't centered on an essential of the faith. How do I know that? Because if it had been over a doctrinal issue, Paul would have addressed it. He wouldn't have just blown it off and said, y'all cut it out. Instead, I think this is more of a, a non-essential disagreement, if that makes sense to you. Something that's not a doctrinal error, but something that they just had a preference on. One said, well, it's supposed to have mayonnaise in it, and the other said mayo, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, they've got this disagreement going uh, over a non-essential. Maybe they disagreed on a matter of preference. Maybe it was something that really in the ultimate big scheme of things, scheme of things had no bearing on eternity. But haven't you seen, I know I have, such disagreements turn into almost church fights sometimes. People get squirrely about some issues. Treating a non-essential as an essential, breaking fellowship. And their agreement, their disagreement had the potential, if it hadn't already, to affect the sweetness of the church's fellowship. So Paul asked a, a person named True Companion. Now scholars have debated who this individual was. If you saw it right there in the text, it's right there in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, True Companion. I would love to know who that was. Was that the pastor at the church at Philippi? Was that uh, a trusted layperson? Was that um, Luke, Paul's traveling companion that might have been over at Philippi at the time when he got the letter? We honestly don't know, but we do know this. Paul says individual, trusted companion, true companion, step in and help these women. They've labored together. They love each other. They've, they've trusted each other. They've, they've been partners in the gospel with Clement and the rest of our fellow workers, everybody whose name is in the book of life. They've been walking together. In a sense, Paul's telling them, don't, don't live in such a way that your name gets written in the book on the letter when it comes in to the church. You know what I'm saying? Don't get yourself in the church record for being cantankerous. Their conflict is remembered centuries later. I mean, I've got to tell you, I don't want my name written anywhere like that, do you? But I think there's something going on here that we need to grasp. The first thought I want you to grasp is this. Living disagreeably not only damages us individually, but has the potential to damage our church. When we live as individuals who are disagreeable, we can become a, a cancer in a fellowship. At a very personal level, the conflict here is between two women, and it grieves Paul's heart. These are fellow laborers in the Lord. They're both part of the church at Philippi. They're both probably influential leaders in their areas of ministry. But living the way they did negatively impacted not only them and their relationship, but the church. But the church, the broader body. Two well-meaning individuals begin to take sides. Now, I've been in local church work, servant leadership work, and staff members in pastoral roles 
I was doing some math this week and I realized I've been doing church work longer than I've over half my life, more than half my life. I was like, wow, 34 years this uh, November. And all those years in different churches, I have seen, I'm sure you have too, situations where two individuals get sideways over an issue. And then people begin to line up behind them and begin to gather around them and begin to take sides. I've seen that in churches, haven't you? And it becomes deadly. And until true companion might step in and say, enough, this conflict will continue to fester, will continue to seethe and become damaging. I think that's why Paul, his prayer for the church at Rome was this, may the, church, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may be may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, friends. We are always more fruitful in the kingdom when we work together, when we're not disagreeable, when we choose to live a life of honor. Second, Paul goes on. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, rejoice occasionally. Is that what he says? No. This book has got the word joy or a version of the word joy a hundred thousand times in it almost seems like. It's every few words, joy, rejoice, be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I think this thought here is what he's trying to tell us is to refuse to live bitterly. To not let bitterness settle into our souls, into our lives, into our culture, into our church life. Don't let negativity dominate them as a church, as individuals. One of the definitions of bitterness or living bitterly is a feeling of antagonism, hostility, or resentfulness. Now, there's a conflict in the church at Philippi brewing between Euodia and Tiki. The potential for bitterness becomes higher. And Because when, when individuals give room for the devil to drive them to declare war over non-essential matters, the potential for bitterness is right there. Well, I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe she thinks you ought to put mayonnaise in your deviled egg mix. It should be mustard instead. And you're thinking, that's silly, Patrick. Of course it is. But when you begin to dig into some of the conflicts in churches over the years, that's what you find is some silly, non-essential argument that really, in the end, is immaterial. And Paul's solution to this problem is what? Joy. Choose joy. He phrases it this way, rejoice in the Lord. You see, with everything Paul had experienced up to this point in his life, including being arrested again, followed by detention in prison, he had a choice to make. He says, I, I can live bitter, I can be angry, I can be upset, I can be petty, or I can choose to what? Rejoice. His word for the church at Philippi, choose joy. Don't let the poor choices of one individual or even a group of individuals rob you of your joy in the Lord. Don't let this root of bitterness settle into your soul because once it gets in there, it is hard to get out. And in fact, he calls them to set anxiousness aside so they can do what they needed to do and they can have the conversation with God and have a prayer life that's, that's effective. And by centering their thought lives on the Lord through prayer, they would face themselves, place themselves in the right place so God could move in them and through them by having this conversation with Jesus 
by telling Jesus all their troubles, they would discover peace, the peace of God. But the decision to reject anxiousness was on them. The decision to run to Jesus was on them. The decision to tell Jesus their trials was on them. And they had a choice to make, not live anxiously. Here's what I want you to grasp from this. We need to live, my friends, in such a way that we expect Jesus to come back very soon. I probably put the wrong prayers up there. Just ignore that one. There it is. Live in such a way we expect Jesus to come back very soon. Over the course of my life, I have heard this phrase more times than I can remember. You know what it is? Jesus is coming back what? Anybody heard that one before? He's coming back when? Soon. Soon. I'll be 55 years old really, really soon. I've been hearing that all my life. Growing up in church, Jesus is coming, he's coming, he's coming. After a while you start thinking, well, maybe he's late. Maybe he's not coming in my lifetime. Maybe he's not coming this century. Maybe he's not coming right now. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we, we believe it's true, but doesn't it at times become easy to think, yeah, he's coming, but not right now. He's not coming that soon. But I want you to know, I think that's a tactic that the enemy uses to get us off track. It's a way to keep our focus off the main thing, the one thing that we're tasked to do. You see, we live with a firm, tangible belief that Jesus is indeed coming back when? Soon. You go, when? I don't know. Scriptures tell us that none of us get to know that date. Not one man, not one woman gets to know when he's coming. But I can tell you this, it's sooner now than it was yesterday. And it'll be sooner tomorrow than it is today, assuming we have tomorrow. But he's coming back soon. So how dare I, as a child of God, live with the mindset that says he's not coming back? Because believing that he's coming will affect and impact our sharing of the gospel. It will affect how we live our lives, the choices we make. It it affects how we Treat one another. How dare I treat a Euodia or a Syntyche poorly in my church and in the kingdom of God? For crying out loud, they're fellow laborers in the Lord. They're brothers, they're sisters. How can I treat them poorly if I'm really indeed a child of God? And how do I live with a spirit of anxiety as if we don't know whose we are. The enemy would love nothing more than to get you and me to live a life of defeat. Our Lord Jesus calls us to a higher place, to a higher plane. In him, there's nothing to fear. In him, there's power to live with confidence. In him, there's an ability to love beyond our natural capacity. And in him, we get to live a life whereby God blesses. That's why Paul told Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Dear friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to fear. And you have no reason to surrender to the fear mongers around you that say, oh, this living for Jesus stuff doesn't matter. It does. No reason to live anxiously. So refuse to live disagreeably. Refuse to live bitterly. I've jumped a page. That's all right. We'll jump back. Which one did I miss? Anxiously. You ever have moments? Did I give y'all number two? Bitterly. Number three, anxiously. Okay. 
I jumped a page on you, though. That's why the point was wrong. You wasn't you, it was me. All right. I don't know where I'm at. I'm working on it. All right. We can choose joy or bitterness. That's a point we need to grasp. Let me say this. When we find ourselves being asked to choose between Euodia and Syntyche, whoever those people are in our lives, we find it difficult, don't we, to not choose a side? Well, I want to be liked by them. I want to be a part of what they have. We have to choose that next step. And as we do, we make a decision about whether we'll live with the presence of Jesus or anywhere else. Let me tell you, we're all going to face trials. Sometimes we mess up at work, don't we? Sometimes we're going to face some difficulties. All of us are going to experience loss. All of us are going to experience heartache. And whether we like it or not, it's simply part of the human experience. So the question isn't, am I going to have difficult seasons? Will I have to deal with difficult times? We will. The question then is, how will we deal with those times? Do we become bitter? Do we spread negativity? Or do we choose to rejoice in the Lord? Because when we stop to think of all we've been given as a follower... Oh, how could we ever sink into negativity and strife? And more importantly, why would we want to? That's why the writer of Hebrews said this, strive for peace. Fight for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it become defiled. God wants us to live lives that are not bitter. Third, we don't need to live anxiously. Let me go ahead and read the text since I've already preached half of this point. But we'll go ahead and get it. Look at verse 5. The Lord is where? At hand. What does that mean? He's right here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, don't live this way. Notice the beginning of this little section right there at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. You know, let me remind you, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Not knowing the outcome of his trial, not knowing what the next days held for him. So he's living with this anxiety of not knowing what's about to happen. And he writes to this church and says, The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious. Can I tell you, I wish I had that kind of faith to step up and go, I'm not worried. I mean, it seems like every week the hits keep coming around here, don't they? As a country, as a community, this, that, 
Here it comes again. Another one, another one, another one. He's living in prison, facing the struggle. And the followers of Jesus were beginning to face persecution from the Roman authorities because of their new religion, put them at odds at worshiping an emperor. Following Jesus in the first century certainly had as much, a much higher cost, I think, than for us today. He had plenty of reasons to be anxious, but he says, let's put that anxiousness aside. Let's have a conversation with God, and let's do the right thing. That's why we need to live in such a way that we expect Jesus to come back very soon. God, give us that spirit of fear. Give us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then finally, number four. We've been called to not live disagreeably, not live bitterly, not live anxiously. Paul now calls the church at Philippi to not live ungodly lives. Look what he does in verses 8 and 9. He lays out six areas where their thought lives should be centered. Now, we could spend an hour or more on these two verses. We're not. Probably. We're not. But look what he says. He says, finally, brothers. Ladies, that includes all of us. That's a generic brothers. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's just break those down real quickly. First, we need to live, he says, y'all need to live lives that are truthful. You know, when truth goes out the window, ugliness runs in. The call in Scripture is to be people who what? Speak the truth in love. If you can't say anything good, the old saying says, don't say anything at all, but when you're going to say something, make sure it's truthful. Second, to be honorable, to live honorably, to speak honorably. Honorable living is centered on the ways of God. If I live like Jesus, I can live an honorable life. Honorable thinking produces a life where we see the best, not the worst. We're looking for the good things, not the bad things. We're bringing blessings, not curses. Third, to think justly. Whatever's right is always right. The root word in the Greek here calls for a way of thinking that is innocent. I find that interesting. I'd love to expand on that just a bit, but I want you to catch the big idea here. It's this, is if we are people who are thinking like God thinks, justly we we think the best of people and we think that they're innocent until we there's a proven guilt in place you know i've encountered people i know you have too that come into a situation where everybody's guilty before they've even said a word that's not from god to think justly to think purely the holy things of god by the way purity is not perfection it's a pursuit to think lovely Number five, guys, that's not to get in touch with your feminine side and become a decorator. That's not what he's talking about here. It's to live in such a way that we do things well. We do it right. 
and that we're agreeable in the process. And then to live commendable, commendably, is to live a life that others see Jesus in you. So what do we do with that? Let me quickly finish. As a follower of Jesus, I absolutely have a choice of how I'm going to live. You say, no, I don't. All the circumstances around me, all the stuff around me is negative. It's all bad. It's all bad. Choose joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Don't let the negativity of our society crush in on you. Don't let the negativity of social media crush in on you. Don't let the news media tell you how to think. Come to the Lord Jesus and let him fill your mind with truth. I have a choice to make. So do you. How am I going to live? And I'm here to tell you, my friends, that if you don't know Jesus yet, you can do lots of good things. You can make contribution to society after contribution to society. You can be viewed as favorably by the world. By the world. But until you have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you can't choose the right life. Romans 3.23 tells us this. All have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 tells us this, none is righteous, none, no, not one. The ugly reality, my friends, is that all of us were born in sin, we will live in sin, and we will die in sin unless there's a change as a result of God's presence coming into our hearts. As a person who answers the call of Jesus, we need to remember what Paul told the church at Corinth, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Have you received the purchase for your sin? Have you answered the call of Jesus? Have you trusted him with your life? You know, I really botched the sermon this morning, but the Holy Spirit is still the Holy Spirit. And the call, my friends, is this. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, don't fall into the negativity of the world. Don't fall into the trash of the world. Don't live the way the world wants you to live. Don't surrender to that. And if you're here today and you haven't met Christ, he wants to give you that forgiveness that will make your life worth living even more than it is right now. What decision do you need to make for him? Do we as Christians need to put aside the negativity? (laughs) That's probably most of us, isn't it? There's a lot of that stuff going around. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You need to meet him. We want to give you the opportunity to do that.